From VT Digger, this is The Deeper Dig. People were just congregating at the edge of the floodwaters and uh, kind of just staring. I think people were kind of in shock at that point. I was in shock at that point. Uh, just kind of going, what is this? Like you can't, your brain cannot process. This is your hometown that is just completely covered in floodwaters. I'm Sam Gail Rosen. On today's episode, we're talking with VT Digger journalists about what they saw while covering the catastrophic flooding across Vermont. Early this month, heavy rains led to historic flooding in many parts of Vermont, causing massive, as yet uncounted, damage to homes, businesses, and infrastructure. At the time of this recording, the state has confirmed that one person was killed by the floods. Like in Tropical Storm Irene in 2011, many towns were under feet of water, and some were transformed into islands, with roots in and out cut off by floodwaters and damaged roads. Against this backdrop, reporters and photographers from VT Digger fanned out, reporting from as many of the affected areas as they could reach. Today, we'll hear from a few of them about what they found. First, let's hear from Aaron Patenko. I'm Erin. I am a reporter at VT Digger. I usually cover data reporting. I make charts and graphics for the website, but I also happen to live in Montpelier. So I was very involved with the Montpelier coverage during the recent flood. I asked Erin about her experience of the floods. You'll hear a few time references. This conversation took place on July 18th, about a week after the height of the flooding. This is quite a tale. Um, I think I first... (laughs) you know, learned about the floods when I received a notification from our uh, beloved editor-in-chief, Paul Hines, on Sunday saying, hey, there's going to be a lot of flooding. And I was actually in Massachusetts at the time. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll just drive home a little bit earlier. I think I knew intellectually that it was going to be bad, but you know how kind of sometimes there's a divide between knowing something like as a fact and knowing something emotionally like processing how bad it's going to be um you know by monday i think the first time it really sunk in was i decided to walk to shaw's just to grab a spare gallon of water just in case you know in case the water goes out for a day uh and i got out of the grocery store and i looked over at the winooski river which is right next to the shaw's and it was like nothing I had ever seen before at that river or anywhere else. It was roaring. It was boiling almost with all of the the strength of the waves and the water. And it was a really, really ugly brownish color. Um, you know, it was nothing like the Winooski River that I knew and loved. And I was like, wow, okay, maybe this really is going to be bad. You know, um, the first time I saw like the floodwaters start to pass into, you know, places where it's not supposed to be is probably around 7 p.m. on Monday. I looked over and I saw that Elm Street had actually started to have floodwaters. And I also looked over and realized there were firefighters at the little intersection of Elm and School Street just kind of standing there figuring out what to do. I mean, there were a lot of people who were still trying to get home frantically. You know, it wasn't like too bad at that point, but it was still raining, right? Um, 
eventually, you know, you, I turned in for the night. When I woke up, School Street Bridge was underwater. Elm Street was underwater. You couldn't walk like two feet on, into it. And um, yeah, when, when I walked by the the, uh, the state capitol, you know, you can see the water is not just flooding State Street, but also running down State Street like it had become part of the river. Like that yeah. was the Winooski River at that point. It was just flowing down <laughs> State Street. Um, you know, it was this big, very light brownish color, like not like, you know, any color that water is supposed to be in Vermont. It smelled like gasoline was bubbling up in really weird ways and really weird places, probably because of the storm drains and how it was flowing around the storm drains uh, and all the other things that were probably hidden under the waters because I couldn't see into them at all. They were completely opaque. Uh, and then, you know, occasionally you would look over and you'd say like, is that a car <laughs> poking out of the top of the, the floodwaters? And, uh, you know, people were just congregating at the edge of each of where the floodwaters were were uh you know heightened and uh kind of just staring i think people were kind of in shock at that point i was in shock at that point uh just kind of going what is this like you can't your brain cannot process this is your hometown that is just completely covered in floodwaters and you know i i just standing there thinking oh my god Bear Palm Books is underwater. Oh my God. Willow Wands in Montpelier, best Thai restaurant in the state is underwater. Like just all these places that I go to on a regular basis and just like realizing that all of them are going to be destroyed. Um, yeah. And then of course, you know, around the same time, we were starting to hear reports that the Wrightsville Dam was potentially going to spill over. There were some reports it was going to breach. That That's not actually true. The dam was never in danger of actually like collapsing or losing structural integrity. Yeah. The question was whether the level of the reservoir would go over the top of the auxiliary spillway. And because it's just so much water in that reservoir, it would have increased the level of flooding in downtown. Um, ultimately, it came within a foot. <laughs> um, you know, from what I understand, they had someone like, standing at the top of the dam and uh, just watching it, you know, ready to alert the town if it was to go over the top of the spillway. Of course, I was constantly getting messages and and phone calls telling me like, I heard it's going to spill over. I think that a lot of people were just really, uh, really nervous. (laughs) You know, things were flying around. I did, again, did get in touch with the fire chief and he was like, it's okay. It's not going over. It's not going over. I talked to the damn guy like 20 minutes ago. And indeed, you know, 20 minutes later, when the waters would have reached Montpelier, it was the same (laughs) as it was. So it was, it, it was really touch and go for a while, but, you know, obviously a relief to see that it didn't eventually happen. Um, and then sometime around 3 p.m., there was like a noticeable change in the water levels. Like you could see the edge of where they had reached because it left this big muddy footprint and where it actually was at that point. Um, and, you know, people were kind of slowly starting to 
you know, try to get towards their maybe businesses to check on how their businesses were doing. I think I actually passed one woman in particular who was like trying to wade through the floodwaters. And she was like, I can get a little bit further this time. And then she turned around and was like, I can't go all the way. Um, <laughs> but, you know, of course, wait a couple more hours. And then, you know, you wake up the next day and the floodwaters have kind of receded, but it definitely does not look normal downtown. There's just muck, like a layer of muck over the entire city. And, you know, that's when um, people started to kind of jump in and, and start to do like basic, like, what is my what is my business look like? What does my property look like? Um, you know, people were, uh, you know, starting to coordinate volunteer efforts. I think it really got going the next day. Uh, volunteers have just arrived in Montpelier in droves uh, in recent days to help businesses basically just clear out all the stuff that got damaged in the flood. I mean, you walk down Montpelier right now on Maine or State, and there's like piles of debris that are bigger than my head, just full of, of every single bit of equipment that, you know, businesses have. Uh, I saw pieces of furniture i saw like random spots of inventory like shoes or books or bookcases the entire bookcases had to be thrown out with the books um and uh you know pieces of drywall pieces of like the actual you know composition of the the rooms themselves had to be thrown away as well so those are still kind of piling the streets i think that trash trash pickup is ongoing. Montpelier has started a fundraising uh, effort through the Montpelier Strong Recovery Fund to try to help businesses and possibly some other organizations that were damaged during the storm. Uh, we don't know yet the full e extent of how many businesses were damaged. Uh, as of yesterday morning, Monday morning, there were a handful of businesses open on Maine, like the Skinny Pancake, Buddies is open, Shaw's is open somehow. I mean, it's right by the river. I don't know how that works. Uh, but pretty much every business that I walk by is closed right now. So I would guess that it's a pretty, pretty high percentage of Montpelier businesses. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right now, um, the fund has raised about $250,000. Um, they are hoping to raise far more because some businesses reported losses of over $1 million in inventory is what the, the fundraisers are saying. Uh, there are programs like the Small Business Administration loans that businesses can apply for. But like I said, it's a loan. So you know, it's not necessarily as advantageous for a business to art that's already struggling as you would get if you were just getting a grant. And, you know, the other aspect of that is just the immediacy of it. A lot of businesses really want money right now. You know, the owners need to pay their business expenses and they also need to pay their own bills. You know, maybe they're, they need to pay rent on their own <laughs> apartments, for example. Uh, so they are really hoping um, to do that sooner rather than later. In addition to her reporting, Erin took care of VT Digger political reporter Lola DeFore's cat. Yes, yes. So during this experience, one of my coworkers, Lola, had to evacuate her apartment, um, mostly to avoid that uh, 
spillway that threatened to run over. And she found someone to take her in, but they couldn't take in her cat, Juna, uh, because they, uh, you know, had her two cats already. This is actually my other coworker, Sarah. Uh, so Juna came and stayed with me and my husband and my cat, who they did not get along, of course, but they looked at each other through the door and hissed at each other. And that was like the extent of the, the fighting. Um, Juna, you know, wasn't happy to be stuck in a room with in my, my husband's office. Uh, but my husband did keep her lots of company and, you know, I kept coming to check on her and give her some extra pets and love. And she was happy about that. So she's, she's all right. She, she got returned to her human after two nights. And uh, last I saw, saw her, she was doing just fine. <laughs> I also spoke to Ethan Weinstein, VT Digger's Southeastern Vermont reporter. He covered some of the areas that were hit by the storm's highest total rainfalls, including Ludlow, which was cut off by the closing of Route 103, the main artery in and out of town. I think that um, for the first couple days, I was definitely fueled by adrenaline. Um, it was a experience unlike any I'd had where essentially stories were just everywhere. You know, I would drive until something prevented me, whether that was a river over a road or a broken bridge or, you know, a swelling stream that looked a little too scary to cross. And then I would just start talking to people and snapping photos. And yeah, it was like there were just, there were stories everywhere because there seemed to be scary things going on everywhere. And how did you actually end up getting to Ludlow? So I didn't, I didn't get to Ludlow until Tuesday. Um, on Tuesday, I headed down uh, Route 103 um, around Proctorsville, Cavendish, um, and headed as far as I could get into Ludlow. Eventually, there was a, a pothole that seemed to have been exacerbated by the flooding and was quite deep. And although I saw some trucks going through it um, in my sedan, I didn't quite feel comfortable. Um, so I left my car and, and started walking into town and wh what did you see as you went in i mean the damage was everywhere there was you know uh porches that had been knocked off of businesses there um one of the businesses that had flooded was a a, a company that sells hot tubs in jacuzzis and so along the river there were hot tubs that had been washed downstream um, and some of them had been uh, brought back to the business and were sitting there partially destroyed. Um, roads were covered in mud where the rivers had flown over them. Um, you know, uh, people were pumping water out of basements and out of first floors. Um, in some places, you know, asphalt had just erupted seemingly. Um, and there were a lot of impassable roads. There were cars that, uh, were sort of surrounded by rocks that had been pushed by the river. Um, eventually, as I was walking towards the center of town, I got to the um, Black River Mobile Home Home Court, um, uh, a mobile home park in Ludlow that was particularly damaged um, by the flooding. And what what kind of damage did you see there? Well, on Tuesday morning. 
there was still water pooled all throughout the park. Uh, the Black River flows right behind uh, the mobile homes, and so it didn't have very far to go. In some places, you know, uh, there were cars that had been left in the park and were no longer usable. Uh, there were propane tanks that had been pushed around by the flooding, uh, lawn furniture, porches ripped off. Um, I mean, it was it was a real mess. Um, and the most significant damage I saw there was a, a mobile home that had been pushed about 100 yards downstream and wound up getting wedged sort of askew um, into some some trees downstream. And did you see people, uh, any of the people who lived there and sort of how they were dealing with all this at the time? Yeah, I got to chat with a few of the folks who live in the park um, and was honestly uh, sort of surprised by their positivity. Um, I think they were still in shock, um, as was, you know, everyone around there. And so they were really able to find silver linings. Um, one, uh, guy and his wife that I, I chatted with, um, there, they'd lived in the park during Irene and Irene had completely destroyed their home. Um, and so this guy, he was a builder and he said that after Irene, he, completely redid the trailer he raised it 16 inches to try to prevent future flooding um and and you know so he poured thousands of dollars into the home um and ultimately despite his efforts uh the home did flood on monday but it it only flooded about an inch um and he thought that uh he'd have to redo the floors but everything else uh was salvageable and he he actually he moved his cars to higher ground so he didn't he didn't lose that and and he was feeling quite good about the day's events he'd slept at a shelter across the street um was grateful for you know the volunteers that had food and and beds and all of that um and he had quite a positive outlook i spoke to another woman who uh had only recently moved to the park and had put in a lot of renovations uh in her trailer i think she said $30,000 worth um much of the outside of her trailer had been destroyed by the flooding. Thankfully, very little water had entered her home. And so, you know, she would need to redo part of the outside. But because of, you know, where it was situated within the park, it wasn't a total loss. But um, she'd actually been, the whole park was evacuated and, and she'd been carried out by a firefighter as water was rushing through the park. Um, and at that point, obviously, you know, she had very little time to think about what she was going to bring with her. And she didn't take her car, and so she she thought her her car was totaled. It was it was still sitting there in the park on Tuesday. And you saw some examples of people who lived there helping others too, right? Yeah. So as I walked further into town, um, I ran into a few girls. They were ten, twelve, um, and they had actually um, been staying at a family camp. Uh, either on the western edge of Ludlow or just outside of Ludlow. And as water started to rise, they had to flee the camp and they wound up staying with an aunt who was living in Ludlow. And so on Tuesday, when I ran into them, they'd set up a lemonade stand. Um, they were giving out free lemonade to people that were helping out to clean up. And they were also accepting donations that they were hoping to share with their neighbors. Um, Another example of this that I ran into, um, there's a, a restaurant and arcade called Gamebird right on Main Street in Ludlow. Um, 
amazing fried chicken. Can't recommend it enough. Um, and their business had been pretty much spared. Um, uh, water hadn't really gotten inside. Their kitchen was working. Their power was on. And so um, the team there had been cooking hot meals um, for free for anyone who wanted them. Um, they'd also partnered with um, nearby uh, brewery Outer Limits, which had seen a lot of flooding um, there over in Cavendish. And so the folks from Outer Limits had brought beer and they'd brought perishables um, and they'd set up a little makeshift free grocery inside Gamebird. And so folks from the community were coming in there to grab a soda, eat some fried chicken and just take a breath, really. Just from what you saw, do you have a sense of what the road to recovery and repair looks like for Ludlow? I think it's it's going to take a lot of time to get to, you know, the state things we're in before the flood. Um, driving around southern Vermont on, you know, last week, I saw a lot of flood damage, you know, roads partially washed out and, um, you know, yards undercut by streams and bridges that were down and, and you know, extreme damage. But in Ludlow, what was so remarkable was that um, based on where mud had been pushed from the flooding, you know, the biggest roads in town had been completely underwater. Um, and these were roads that were, you know, some distance from the river, not just they, they weren't businesses that were sitting next to streams. They were a couple blocks away. Um, and so there was really, really significant damage there. Um, I guess what I do know is that, um, because Ludlow is a mountain town, a ski town, um, it does have that, uh, source of economic activity. And so, um, you know, folks are going to keep coming to town and, and there'll be that, um, stream of, of income, but, um, you know, because it is a, a recreation-based town, and like I said, there are those slow seasons, um, folks really rely on the summertime to make a big uh, portion of their year's uh, profit. And so missing out on these few weeks or months in July and August and September are going to be really tough. Finally, I talked to VT Diggers staff photographer, Glenn Russell who covered a remarkable amount of ground during the storm and the flooding. Rochester, Ludlow, Rutland, Montpelier, Berlin, Barrie, and more. Glenn also covered Tropical Storm Irene back in 2011. I asked him what he brought when he went out to photograph in these kinds of conditions. Well, the important thing is to stay clean. So uh, I brought a bunch of uh, sanitizing gel, um, I bought a change of clothes. I bought a uh, change of shoes. I brought some power bars. I brought water um, and uh, rain gear. I mean, my <laughs> as a photographer, my main concern is my gear. I can get wet, but the gear is better sealed than it was back in the day but still when you're talking torrential rains and electronics that's a bad mix i have um my uh my now deceased father's uh great big huge cabela uh rain jacket so which is uh it's 
it covers me my and my cameras and my gear. It looks weird as hell, but it really worked. It really kept my stuff dry. Um, I put my key fob in a Ziploc bag. I put my phone in a Ziploc bag. Um, I just wanted to really keep the electronics clean. And uh, I also wanted to keep me clean. You know, whenever I got out of water, I would give myself a... a sanitizing bath. I would rub sanitizer all over my feet, legs, nether regions, everything, anything that got ex- exposed to flood water, I would rub down with uh, disinfectant. How did, how did the water that you were going through look and smell in these places? Well, Monday, when I was down in Southern Vermont, the water was turbulent and muddy, but didn't smell bad, didn't smell fouled. Tuesday in Montpelier, the water stank because of, uh, you know, it was much more static. Uh, There was a lot more, it was an an urban area rather than a rural area. Um, You know, you could see the sheens of uh, whatever toxic gunk was in the water. So... In terms of toxicity, I think the I think the Tuesday water in Montpelier was a lot more dangerous than the Monday water that was just running off the mountain. And then, of course, uh, when I went to Barrie on Wednesday, uh, you know that started it's things had started to dry out and things had started to stink, and that mud was super viscous and. Uh, not anyone's idea of a good time. And were there any conversations you had with with people in the course of this work that stick out to you? What stuck out to me, what sticks out to me, and this was the same thing during Irene, was how gracious people were to have me there and take their picture uh, at one of the worst moments in their lives. Um, no one said no. Um some people were actually happy to see me and happy to have their stories told. Um, but I think there was a, a sense that we're, we're all in this together. And um, yeah, come on in, man. Take a photo. To see Glenn's photos, Aaron and Ethan's stories, much more flood coverage, and more episodes of The Deeper Dig, visit vtdigger.org. Thanks to Paige Fisher, Max Scheinblum, and Natalie Williams, who helped produce this podcast. I'm Sam Gilrosen. This is The Deeper Dig. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.